It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, this really bums me out. If you are a morning person, according to a new study, you may be at reduced risk for major depression. But I'm not a morning person. I'm a night owl trying to force myself to be a morning person because I got to get up because of things like work and obligations. Uh, So there's this new study. I'm looking at this in the New York Times. There have been a bunch of studies suggesting that if you have the right circadian sleep-wake cycle, which has to do with when you go to sleep and when you wake up, and you're more of an early bird, you have a lower risk of depression. The new study, but it's hard to pin this down because... You know, there could be other factors, but the new study offers more evidence that if you put the other factors aside, going to bed early and waking up early may give you a much lower chance, significantly lower, of being depressed. But, of course, you're depressed. uh, It's hard to get up early. All right, enough about that. Uh, Some good news here in our area, at least. Over the weekend, Maryland reported two straight days with zero, zip, nada, deaths from coronavirus, District of Columbia, two straight days, zero deaths. Virginia had one death. The numbers have since crept back up a a little bit. Uh, I know there's now new warnings about variants and all of that. It it is just amazing, uh, given how this COVID-19, you know, just rampaged and ravaged the country to have any states, and these are not the only states, I happen to see this local story, um, where the deaths are minimal or actually zero. But if we could just get another 10, 15% of the population vaccinated, we could vanquish this thing. And that's been moving up very, very slowly. President Biden's not going to meet his July 4th goal of 70%. Some states have met the 70% threshold for full vaccination or even you know partial vaccination, but a lot of the country is not there. Well, today you're going to hear a lot about the voting rights bill because Chuck Schumer is bringing it up in the Senate. Um, The Democrats are going to lose. Schumer knows they're going to lose. They don't have 60 votes. The Republicans will threaten to filibuster. But it's an an opportunity uh, to have a debate, drive a news cycle. Uh, Certainly what Democrats want to do is point out that Republicans, even when Joe Manchin offered a much uh, narrower compromise bill, on voting rights. Republicans, Mitch McConnell, they all rejected it out of hand. But nevertheless, life is ruled by math, and the Senate in particular is ruled by math, and this thing is going to fail, so it'll be a day of heavy coverage of voting rights. Billie Eilish is apologizing for a recent video that surfaced. Um, You know, we have this sort of endless hamster wheel of celebrity apologies, but this one, I mean, I just feel bad for her. Uh, it showed her using an Asian slur and seeming to mock Asian accents. But this came out on TikTok. Um, she sang along to a song called Fish, uh, and it has this slur in it. It's a slip in her drink and in the blink of an eye, I can make a white girl look, and then comes the slur. Um, and she's kind of speaking gibberish, which sounded like an Asian accent. So the, the reason why I think this is basically BS is She made this video when she was 13 or 14 years old. Here's the apology. I mouthed a word from a song that at the time I didn't know was a derogatory term used against members of the Asian community. I am appalled and embarrassed and want to barf that I ever mouthed along to that word. She denies uh, and mocking the Asian accent. She said it was just a sort of gibberish language that she used as kind of an inside joke. Uh, I don't know. If somebody apologizes and they say they want to barf, 
I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, there was a bit of a debate over the weekend, a lot of this raged on Twitter, where many debates tend to rage, uh, about this horrible accident in Florida uh, taking place at a gay pride parade. Uh, what, what happened was that there was a car or a truck that went into the crowd. One person was killed. The mayor of Fort Lauderdale, Dean Trantalis, did a very stupid thing. He rushed to judgment, just as you're not supposed to do. Uh, it's terrible. They're laying on the ground. This is clearly a terrorist act against the LGBT community. He said this on Saturday. This is disgusting. This is why we are fearful of our lives. Well, it turns out it was an accident involving a 77-year-old guy who wanted to be part of the parade, but he has trouble walking, so they said he could drive his car. I mean, it's an absolute tragedy, sure. But what happened is... A number of journalists tweeted about the mayor's remarks, and there were, uh, you know, stories online and all of that. And, you know, I think most news organizations have learned their lesson not to assume, oh, this person must be from some Arab country or must be anti-gay or whatever. I mean, on the surface, gay pride parade, somebody gets killed. Of course, it crosses your mind. But, you know, a lot of things cross my mind that I don't say out loud or tweet or write or put on the air. Um, but on the other hand, the journalist who quoted the mayor, uh, you know, got, got creamed for that. I think, look, if the mayor of the city comes out and says this publicly, I don't know that you can not report it. What you can do is say without offering evidence. In other words, he didn't say, the mayor, Trantellis, didn't say there was a police department investigation that led him to believe us. He was just popping off. Uh, so now he says, you know, I regret the fact that I said it was a terrorist attack because we found that it was not. But I don't regret my feelings. I don't regret that I felt terrorized by somebody who plowed through the crowd. Okay, but it wasn't a deliberate terrorist attack. So it was a horrible accident. Just an interesting um, lesson in rushing to judgment that public officials can do this as well as journalists. And one other quick note before we get down to business. Uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, who was quoted a couple years ago, I guess he disputed or said it was out of context, as saying there's a big difference between you know theatrical films released in a a movie theater, and, you know, Netflix-type streaming films. Well, he signed a deal with Netflix. His company uh, will have one deal uh, with Universal Pictures and another with Netflix. Uh, you know, for Netflix, which started out as this, you know, uh, video rental company, DVD rental company, I should say, and now, you know, he's able to get talent like Steven Spielberg. That's really uh, just an absolute milestone. Uh, story in Deadline says that the director will not revisit Jaws, uh, despite rumors to the contrary. He's not going to reboot this or redo this. Uh, the answer is no. All right, number one, let's go to the world of sports. All right, let's have a check of the weather and we'll go to the top sports story. And the top sports story here, number one, the Supreme Court ruling yesterday, and it's a unanimous ruling, which doesn't happen all that often, that's the NCAA cannot bar relatively modest payments to student-athletes. And it really has shined a harsh spotlight on this system where, you know, the NCAA, all of these colleges and universities get to make zillions of dollars uh, off of these athletes who, you know, they're in college, they're taking courses, but let's face it, they're there because they're great 
uh, basketball players. They're there because they're great baseball players. They're there because they're great football players. And, you know, the uh, education part, which should be, of course, at the center of their tenure at these schools, uh, is kind of a sideline. So everyone gets to make money, but they can't make money because they have to be amateurs. Well, the, the Supreme Court uh, really sort of knocked this down. It said, I mean, here's his decision. Well, he didn't write the main decision, but a concurring opinion. Brett Kavanaugh, who, as you may recall, uh, has coached his daughter's uh, school basketball teams, says nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be any different. The NCAA is not above the law. So for 115 years, the NCAA has basically defended this principle, you know, the people who play sports in college should only be amateurs. Uh, You know, they can get a scholarship, books, room and board, they can get related costs, maybe even living expenses, but... You know, you've got these TV rights deals which have made a fortune, billions of dollars going to the NCAA and uh, big-name coaches and all that, but the kids get screwed unless they eventually graduate or leave college and go professional. So next week, according to the New York Times, uh, student-athletes in at least six states are poised to be allowed to make money off their personal fame not because of action by the NCAA, but because of state officials who have gotten tired of this industry's efforts to limit the rights of players. Uh, Here's a quote from Gabe Feldman. He's director of the sports law program at Tulane. He said, this is a modest victory for the NCAA's critics because the justices had the opportunity to undercut the broader amateurism argument and chose not to. This is a more narrow ruling. That's maybe why it was unanimous. Um... It can only be a matter of time, this guy says, before all of the NCAA's restrictions on compensation are struck down as antitrust violations. You know, I I like the idea, the sort of platonic idea of students playing sports in their spare time and not turning college sports. I mean, that's the problem. College sports is a very, very, very big and lucrative business. But the people on whose you couldn't have college sports without these student-athletes, and yet they don't get a dime. And so I become much more sympathetic to the idea that they are getting screwed. Um, Gorsuch writes, Neil Gorsuch, some thinks the district court did not go far enough by permitting colleges and universities to offer enhanced education-related benefits. Its decision may encourage scholastic achievement, allow student-athletes a measure of compensation more consistent with the value they bring. At the same time, others will think the district court went too far by undervaluing the social benefits associated with amateur athletics. But I come back to Kavanaugh, you know, go Brett. The labels cannot disguise the reality. The NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. As long as we're in the sports portion of the program, let's move on. Number two, you may already have heard about this, uh, defensive end for the Las Vegas Raiders, Carl Nassib, announced yesterday on Instagram that he is gay, making him the first active NFL player to come out. And my first reaction was, 
the Raiders are playing in Las Vegas. I completely forgot about that. You know, they bounced back and forth between Oakland and uh, L.A. for so long. But my second reaction was, it's 2021, and this is a big story. Well, I guess it is a big story because players in the past have come out after they have left the National Football League. And there was one draft pick, got a huge amount of publicity by the name of Michael Sam, but he ended up not playing in any regular season game. So he puts out this video. He says, what's up, people? I'm Carl Nassib. I'm at my house here in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And I just want to take a quick moment to say that I'm gay. Meaning to do this for a while now, but I finally feel comfortable enough to get it off my chest. I really have the best life. I've got the best family, friends, and job a guy can ask for. I'm a pretty private person. So I hope you guys know that I'm really not doing this for attention. I just think that representation and visibility are so important. And it's great. And I love the way he did it. And he also said that in order to make the coming out process easier in the future for others, he's going to donate $100,000 to the Trevor Project, a nonprofit that aims to prevent suicide against LGBTQ youths. Um, he also said in a written message that he's agonized this about this moment for the last 15 years. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell put out a statement of support, praising him for courageously sharing his truth. And the league shares his hope that someday soon statements like his will no longer be newsworthy. Uh, and that would be great. Um, and interesting here, because, you know, you might view this as, and he says, I don't want attention. My view says, look, he becomes famous. He's the first one to do it as an active player. Maybe get some endorsements. But Nassib said he's not going to do any interviews. And he asked that reporters not take offense, but rather afford him some privacy. So he's still obviously struggling with this a little bit. But he has made the decision to do this. Uh, in order to set an example for kids that, you know, you can grow up and be a tough guy uh, in terms of the the brutal realities of the National Football League. And and your sexuality is your own business. And, and there's no reason to engage in that stereotype. So I like the way he handled it. I was not familiar with this particular player, uh, but it's, it's made news everywhere. Uh, and maybe it's true. Maybe there'll come a time when it'll be ho-hum, not even worth talking about. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. Sheldon Whitehouse, Democratic Senator from Rhode Island. Talk about 2021 and how is it that we're still having this discussion. This is unbelievable. And I am surprised that the coverage of what I'm about to tell you is not far, far more negative. So Senator Whitehouse, through his family... Uh, are tied to a very exclusive, very posh beach club in Rhode Island amid questions, as the Washington Post puts it, about whether the club's membership is all white. His family has long belonged to this Bailey's Beach Club, uh, formerly known as the Spouting Rock Beach Association. It's a private club in Newport. It's been described as a haven for the Vanderbilts, the Astors and other members of America's ruling class. Okay, so you got to be, have a lot of money and be a pretty big deal to be in this club. So um, White House gave an interview uh, just before the weekend with a local news site, and he was asked, does this club that you belong to have any non-white members? And the senator says, I think the people who are running the place are still working on that, and I'm sorry it hasn't happened yet. Uh, he was pressed about this, and he said, it's a long tradition in Rhode Island. There are many of them. We just need to work our way through the issues. Okay, I'm sorry. This is completely and totally 
unacceptable. Uh, for a Democratic senator who claims to be for civil rights and so forth, and I'm not doubting his legislative record, he's associated with a club that at least has the reputation of being all white. And his answer is, I'm sorry it hasn't happened yet. His answer is, the people who are running the place are still working on that? No way! I mean, he should, the correct answer is, yes, and I deeply regret it, and I'm resigning as of today. That's the only acceptable political answer. What are we talking about here? Long tradition in Rhode Island. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's a nice club. I'm sure the people there are very nice. But how do you even get away with this? So um, then a spokesman for Senator Whitehouse says, oh, well, you know, the Beach Club has no restrictive policy regarding race or ethnicity. The club has had and has members of color. Okay, so maybe there have been a few over the years. I don't know. This is the senator's spokesman talking. The club itself isn't commenting. Porter called up. They said, we're not making a statement this time. The woman hangs up. Okay, you would think if Bailey's Beach Club, you know, was actually a, a place that had a diverse membership or had absolutely no bar, whether it's written down or not is irrelevant, you know these things work, they would come out and make a statement, but it's not. And Sheldon Winehouse says, oh, they're still working it. They're working through the issues. This is bull, absolute bull. And there should be a political uproar over this. A little more backstory here. Um, according to this low, uh, uh, local outlet, Go Local Prov, meaning Providence, when he ran for Senate in 2006, Whitehouse had pledged to leave this club. Instead, so I guess he had an ownership stake in it. Whitehouse transferred his shares in the club to his wife, who is now one of the club's largest shareholders. That sounds like a bit of a dodge, Senator. Uh, the spokesman disputed that he planned to leave the club in 2006. He didn't say that. He recalls transferring his shares to accommodate a club policy of spouses not both being members. Okay, I don't know. Um, Davidson said that while Whitehouse is no longer a member, his wife is, which means they get to go to the club together. Look, I'm not against country clubs. I'm not against Rhode Island. I'm not against Sheldon Whitehouse. But this is just completely unacceptable in 2021. And... If this was a Republican senator, do you think this would be a bigger story? Look, the Washington Post is writing about it. Uh, the Rhode Island Press is writing about it. I, I've seen it elsewhere. But it's kind of like, you know, White House says this, and the club didn't comment, and here's his explanation. I just think this is an outrage. It's an absolute outrage. Was this common maybe in the 70s and 80s uh, when society was more willing to put up with this kind of racial segregation? Yeah, but in the 21st century? All right, let me move on. Number four, we will turn to the Trump part of the program. Number four comes from the Daily Beast. Uh, it is a reported piece about Donald Trump. And it says that uh, back when Donald Trump was president, he was mad yet again at Saturday Night Live. And he wanted the federal government to help him settle the score. So this is March of 2019. President of the United States had watched an episode of the NBC show. It was actually a rerun. He got pretty pissed off that the show was mocking him. I don't know if this was an Alec Baldwin sketch or whatever. I didn't find that in the piece. Um, 
So, I mean, Trump doesn't hide these things. He tweeted at the time. It's truly incredible that shows like Saturday Night Live, not funny slash no talent, can spend all their time knocking the same person, me, over and over without so much as a mention of the other side. Um, yeah, it's kind of true if you look at, you know, how many SNL skits, uh, Biden skits is SNL done? and Not so much. Okay, um, then... Trump says, like an advertisement without consequences, same with late night shows. Should Federal Election Commission and or FCC look into this? Question mark. So that was all public at the time. Uh, you know, ridiculous question and a threat, says the Daily Beast. SNL is obviously satire. It's a form of protected speech. You can't do anything to a program that's a comedy show. Uh, however, according to this story, Trump went further than simply tweeting his displeasure. There were internal discussions uh, between the president and some of his political and legal advisors that underscored just how much Trump wanted to use the full weight and power of the U.S. government to punish his personal enemies. I mean, this reminds me of some of the stuff coming coming out now about President Trump in the final weeks pressuring DOJ unsuccessfully, I might add, and the acting attorney general after Bill Barr left um, to investigate some of the wilder uh, or unproven conspiracy theories, including the Italy Gate you know, secret satellite technology manipulating U.S. voting machines that I talked about yesterday. Okay, according to two people familiar with the matter, Trump asked advisors and lawyers what the Federal Communications Commission, the court systems, and most confusingly, the Department of Justice could do to probe or mitigate SNL, Jimmy Kimmel, and other late-night comedy mischief makers. Now, to those who heard it, Trump's inquiries um, were more of a nuisance than a constitutional crisis. One source is quoted honestly saying, it was more annoying than alarming, to be honest with you. But, you know, the piece makes the case that he was willing to use these agencies, these regulatory agencies, and of course uh, the top law enforcement agency, uh, almost like his personal law firm. You know, it's another one of these things where nothing came of it, there was no investigation started, so maybe it's just a blip. Um... But the fact that Trump would say these things did indicate, you know, the idea that there should be a line, not just between the President of the United States and the Justice Department on any criminal, even civil matter that might touch on him politically or personally, but the same thing having to do with federal regulatory agencies, you know, not being used for partisan political reasons to go after somebody who's perceived as a critic or an opponent or an enemy of the White House, that's a pretty fundamental constitutional principle. So I think just by tweeting about it, I mean, it's one thing for Trump to, you know, slam SNL, no talent, not funny, Alec Baldwin, whatever, to call it one-sided, fine. That's all his free speech. Doesn't have that right now because he can't be on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Um... And, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, here's the question. Was Trump pressuring, as he clearly did, according to those newly uh, released emails obtained by the New York Times, with the DOJ pushing them to do something that where it's just improper to even discuss it, not leaving alone the fact that there was no solid evidence, as Bill Barr's Justice Department had found about election fraud. But, you know, well, where's the line between if he's just venting? Well, can, you know, is, can anything be done about this? And the line where some aides might feel the President of the United States wants to know if the FCC uh, or the DOJ 
uh, have the governmental authority to look into Jimmy Kimmel or Saturday Night Live. I mean, that's a whole different situation, which is why I've come to saying, you know, Donald Trump was president for four years, and we're going to spend the next four years, at least the media are, trying to unravel and untangle more of what we didn't know over the last four years. Do I think we should be so obsessed with Donald Trump at this point? No. I think we ought to deal with the Biden administration, the Biden regulatory agencies, all the problems, pandemic, economy, voting rights, you name it, that the 46th president is dealing with. But some of this stuff is clearly newsworthy and is going to be uh, a subject for media fodder. Not just because arguably it's important, but because Trump brings ratings and clicks. You know, you can have the 4,000th story on the voting rights debate under Biden that's going nowhere, or you can have, oh, Donald Trump wanted to put Alec Baldwin in jail. Let's have a film at 11. All right. And since we're in the Trump portion of the podcast, let's go to number five. And this is actually a modern day story. And here I'm going to side with Donald Trump because I'm just like, you know, your journalistic umpire called balls and strikes. So I'm looking at this version from ABC. Everybody's got this story. Donald Trump's company, the Trump Organization, yesterday sued New York City. When you sort of see that headline, you say, what's he suing New York about? What's this got to do with it? Okay. The suit is for wrongful termination of contracts that the Trump Organization had to operate certain city facilities. You know, nobody remembers this. You'd have to be a New Yorker and your memory has to go back a long way. But the first national publicity I think that Donald Trump got, this is even before he wrote Art of the Deal, in the 80s, is when he challenged the then mayor, Ed Koch, to let his organization renovate or rebuild the Central Park ice skating rink. And he vowed that he would do it in, in like in three months and under cost. And he did. He pulled it off, you know, because a private company can move a lot faster than the lumbering city government. So even, you know, as recently as last year, he had these um, contracts. And one of them uh, was for a golf course, to operate a golf course in the Bronx at a place called Ferry Point. He also had contracts to operate to the two Central Park ice skating rinks, going back to the story I just told you. That was bringing the, the Trump org about $17 million a year. So what happened is after January 6th, Bill de Blasio, the outgoing mayor of New York City, who ran for president, got clobbered, got nowhere, and obviously he's a liberal Democrat and has been attacking Donald Trump for years, um, said, you know what, uh, we don't like what you did here, we're dumping your contracts. So the Trump Organization lawsuit says the city has no right to terminate our contract, Mayor de Blasio's actions are purely politically motivated, have no legal merit, and are yet another example of the mayor's efforts to advance his own partisan agenda and interfere with free enterprise. Now, at the time, after the riot at the Capitol, de Blasio came out and said, the pres- you know, basically what I'm about to read you is pleading guilty to the charge that the Trump Organization makes in its legal filing yesterday. Here's what de Blasio said at the time. The president incited a rebellion against the United States government that killed five people and threatened to derail the constitutional transfer of power. The city of New York will not be associated with those unforgivable acts in any shape, way, or form, and we are immediately taking steps to terminate all Trump Organization contracts. Now, I'm not defending what Trump did on January 6th. We've talked about this. I've written about this. Um... Even many Republicans at the time, Mitch McConnell, even Kevin McCarthy, uh, ripped 
President Trump for his role in whipping up all the people coming here who then, you know, whether he wanted them to break the law, whether he wanted them to engage in violence or not, that seemed to be the effect. But the whole point of having a contract is that somebody can't wake up the next day and say, you know what, I don't like this person anymore. Uh, I think they're really bad. They do bad political stuff. I have a different political agenda. So I'm just going to unilaterally terminate this contract. Uh, the Trump Organization said in a statement, there could be no dispute uh, that we are not just meeting, but exceeding our obligation to operate a first-class tournament quality daily fee golf course. Um, so here's some uh, circular logic now. One of the sub-arguments that the city of New York is using under Blasio to terminate at least the, uh, the golf course contract in the Bronx is that now, because Trump is such a radioactive guy and he's such a terrible human being, um, we'll never be able to attract a first-class golf tournament. So think about this. Trump does whatever he does leading up to January 6th. A lot of people are then mad at Donald Trump. As a result, the city claims we can't get a first-class golf tournament, but there's nothing in the contract that says that Donald Trump organization has any responsibility to bring a first-class golf tournament to this particular course. I mean, you just don't have a lot of world-class golf tournaments in the Bronx. Just fact of life. There's a lot of other places, and a lot of you know places with better climates and 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 so forth, where these major tournaments can be played. Now, remember that the PGA decided it was not going to; it was canceling plans for next year to hold a major championship at a Trump course. I think it's a little different when it hasn't happened yet. I don't know whether that could be regarded as a breach of contract or not. I don't know if it was a firm commitment or not. But anyway, I, I have to say, whether you hate Donald Trump, whether you love Donald Trump, he had a contract with the city. He didn't breach the contract. He did something that Bill de Blasio didn't like. Now, again, I don't approve of Trump's conduct, but I think here he's probably going to win the case. I don't think the city has a legal leg to stand on. Unless, you know, and they'll, they'll appeal it and so forth and so on. So that concludes the sports portion of our program. Thank you, as always, for listening. You know, you can get this in your inbox, Apple iTunes, on your Amazon device, Google Podcasts, foxnewspodcast.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow with more Bug News. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.